Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 65 degrees, 710 in the Twin Cities. Well, there are changes uh, in regulations on how to handle alleged college uh, sexual assaults on college campuses. Uh, this is the original reason that I wanted to book my next guest, but I also want to talk to him about a very interesting op-ed he had in the Star Tribune about keeping downtown safe. Joe Tamburino, thanks for coming on. Hi, how you doing? Great. Well, listen, I hope you heard the intro because I wanted to, originally I wanted to talk to you about the college sex assaults, which I do, because I think that that's something that people do need to know about. But I, I was fascinated by your op-ed that you sent me uh, in the Star Tribune. You are, what's your exact title with the Downtown Neighborhood Association? Sure. I'm the chair of the Downtown Neighborhood Association, which is uh, the neighborhood association that's recognized by the city of Minneapolis to represent downtown east and west. All right. Because I think you've got some really good ideas. In fact, I told you you should run for mayor. <laughs> you said, no, not, not, not quite I yet. <laughs> but let me ask you, first of all, what should people know about the, the regulations involving sex assault at college sure. campuses? Well, here's what's happening. Back in 2011, the Obama administration had what's called a Dear Colleague letter, where it basically said, look, all uh, higher education institutions, if you receive any federal money, and 99% of them do, you must go through a, uh, a rigorous process of trying to basically prosecute in a college level within the university sexual assault cases. And it made the threshold of proof only more more likely than not. And it wanted them to do this within 60 days. And it wound up getting a lot of people accused of crimes that I don't think, quite frankly, they could prove ever in court. And now the Trump administration has redone that. They're starting the process of opening the whole thing up again. They just, in the new Dear Colleague letter issued last uh, two weeks ago, they withdrew the original letter and they're going to develop new plans. Okay. And, and so you're obviously coming at this from a defense attorney's perspective. You're saying what was happening under this plan, which I think was intended to reduce sexual assaults, is you were getting cases where people were being accused and, and there wasn't that much proof. And, and what were the consequences if uh, uh, the con- they were convicted or so-called convicted? I'm putting that in quotes. Uh, in, in the what, – what, what was it? Like a – it wasn't like a trial. It was – some no, kind of not proceed- even close it was some kind of a proceeding within the school system. That's right. See, in the private school setting, like, you know, your McAllister, St. Thomas, Gustavus, uh, they don't, there are, there are no hearings. Basically, they have an investigator type person who's not a law enforcement official look through the whole case, take statements, and then do a report to the university, and the university decides. And, you know, the accused and the accuser both have input, but there's not even close to a hearing. In your public schools, because they're owned by the government, state-run, they do give you a hearing, like your University of Minnesota, Duluth, Wisconsin. Um, but the standard was so low 
of preponderance of the evidence, and they wouldn't let attorneys act like attorneys in these situations that I think it caught a lot of people in that net who, quite frankly, would not have been prosecuted in court. And in terms of, is this like right away, this goes into effect absolutely, completely right away? It does. The new Dear Colleague letter withdrew the other letter, and then the administration is going to go through a public hearing process to determine what should be the rules going forward. My prediction is that they will probably up the standard to what's called clear and convincing evidence, which is a standard that's used in court for a lot of things, as well as give attorneys at least some role in this. Because right now, when somebody hires me or any other attorney to help them through the Title IX process, we can only act as what's called an advisor. We can't argue on their behalf. We can't file any type of legal opinions or briefs. We're simply an advisor. So it's a little difficult situation. And and let me ask you, so you've actually been hired in these cases. If a situation is clear-cut enough and, and there's been a sexual assault, I would assume there would be criminal charges. But that's not what we're talking about here. That is correct. Out of all of my cases that I've done, the ones that have been completely clear-cut were prosecuted and there was no issue at school. I mean, quite frankly, the person just said, I will withdraw from school, I'll resign, I'll transfer, because there were criminal charges and they had a case. Uh, but the big majority of, of the cases you know, that I've dealt with, 80% of them, I would say, do not involve criminal prosecution. In fact, Many of the times the case has been submitted to the police and either they found that there wasn't enough evidence to proceed or if they brought it to a prosecutor's office, the prosecutor's office declined to charge, again, because of a lack of evidence. Yet they did have to go through this proceeding and yes. more often than not were found, quote, yes. guilty or whatever they, the term is. Responsible. responsible. Yeah, okay. the pro- right, and the problem with that is is that you know, it's not being found responsible for, uh, uh, you know, a, a disorderly conduct or a drinking or drug violation. You're being found responsible for sexual assault. And that's what your academic record is going to say. And that's what you were found responsible for. So if you ever do some type of uh, serious background check, I mean, not your average background check, but if you five years after school, you want to go into the FBI or a federal position or something along those lines, they will find this and it's going to be hard to answer. Wow. Okay. Listen, we're talking with Joe Tamburino, who's a criminal defense attorney. Uh, We do have to take a quick break, pay some bills, but I want to ask you about, uh, you have some really good ideas for making downtown safer. And I, I think we should throw those out there. And I hope people are listening because I think that there's something that these are you know, some of the pretty straightforward things that could be adopted. Uh, Joe is also uh, with the, the head of the Downtown Neighborhood Association. So let's take a quick break. More with Joe Tamburino after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 719 in the Twin Cities. We're chatting with uh, Joe Tamburino, who I often go to for analysis on legal stories or legal issues uh, that I either report on here on News Radio 830 or at WCCO TV. But you wrote, Joe, a, a commentary for the Star Tribune on three ways downtown Minneapolis could be safer. You're the chair of the Downtown Minneapolis Neighborhood Association. And I got to tell you, you know, I work Sunday mornings and uh, at WCCO TV, and it's actually been a little quiet the past few weeks. But the kinds of incidents that have been going on in downtown Minneapolis are 
outrageous. Yet there are yeah. – it is such a wonderful potential area. It's been hit by this construction problem. But you have some really good ideas and I, I'd like you to share them with all of us and hopefully hopefully some of the candidates for mayor are listening. I hope so. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I live in downtown uh, with, with my family. I also own a small business, a small law firm downtown. So I'm very committed to downtown. And, and, but downtown you, and you are a suburban guy. I mean, this is pretty – That's right. Recent. I moved. I moved into downtown three years ago. I've always had the business down there, but I've moved actually as a resident downtown three years ago, and that's because I think downtown is great. Um, it's it's really a fabulous place. But the Hennepin Avenue situation has gotten just untenable, and until somebody or a group of people are willing to actually work on this with common sense solutions, I don't think it's ever going to be solved. And the three things that I point out are very completely legal, 100% constitutional, believe me, because I'm a defense attorney, and I think could be implemented. Uh, the first one is to bring back the law that we had before, which the city council two years ago repealed, which is blocking the sidewalks. We can't have people blocking the sidewalks constantly, especially after like 8 or 9 o'clock at night. You have to empower the police to be able to tell people to move along. You just can't sit there as if it's a picnic. Right. And are you, Second, are you talking about people who are just kind of loitering or people who are panhandling? Uh, basically, well, both. But the loitering is probably the biggest problem because uh, people are congregating in groups of 15 or 20. I, I could tell you it was less than two months ago. It was about six weeks ago. I was at my office late. And on my office is on Hennepin and 5th. I left the office at about 8.30 at night. It was a Thursday night. I had to call 911 because there was a group of 20 people on the, on the southwest corner of 5th and Hennepin, and uh, two women got into a fight, and I mean a fight, and they spilled onto Hennepin Avenue. And uh, this is the kind of things that we're seeing. And if you don't attack those problems, it just gets worse and worse because then you're basically saying to an unruly element, hey, it's okay to do that here, and it's not okay. You have people getting out of the theaters. You have uh, older people. You have handicapped people. You have people who just want to enjoy their evening and spend money, time, and have fun in Minneapolis, and they should be allowed to do so. Right, or else you, you mentioned you've got a teenager. Uh, you know, right. Do you want him, you, know, you mentioned you know, bikes around, which is great to have those opportunities. I, th- I, I mean, I think that's a really you know, compelling thing that you wrote about, but I, I would think you'd have some concerns about him you know, riding a bike yep. at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, that's it, and it's funny too. He did some volunteer work at the uh, public library right downtown on Hennepin. He was uh, teaching younger kids. Um, he was basically helping them write papers, um, and it was really a fabulous experience for him. But yeah, we want to make it safer. And the second thing is is to have uh, basically more dedicated patrols on Hennepin Avenue. Um, having more police being able to walk that street late at night is very important. And in order to do that, we have to get more staffing at the first precinct. That precinct, and you could call them up and verify this, has not had an increase in patrol officers in about 20 years. And look at downtown. The first precinct has people. First precinct has not. Wow. We've basically been staffing the same amount for almost 20 years. And downtown's population has grown, I think we're up to 30, 35,000 people now. So it's quite a bit. Wow. And the last thing is, is nobody really realizes that on Hennepin Avenue right now, there are at least a dozen cameras. 
and the cameras are operated by the Minneapolis Police Department and the Downtown Improvement District. And they video, and which is totally 100% legal because you're videoing public space. Right. But I want to have some of those cameras be accessible to the public. I mean, right now, Esme, you and I could go on our laptops and pull up what's happening in Little Italy in Manhattan, in Piccadilly Circus in, uh, in uh, London. We could go and see the... So we, we, we could actually look at those surveillance cameras. Live, exactly. Uh, Chicago has the same thing. Um, and that's 100% legal again, too, because you're looking at a public area. So I think it would be very important for the public to see what's going on in their city streets to see how the police are reacting and just give transparency because, uh, you know, it, the best thing to do for any problem is to shed light on it. And the best right. way to shed light on it is to show the public what's happening on Hennepin. Right. And, and, and right now, I believe you can pull up the MnDOT cameras um, to, right, to look at the, right. you know, traffic situations. So it's not, uh, you know, completely unprecedented. Have you, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're the, the, that, chair of the downtown Minneapolis Neighborhood Association. Has anybody, have you brought these ideas forward, especially that last one? Uh, because it's, yes. why not? And, and what's been the reaction? Uh, well, with the public, it's been positive. From the city, it has not been positive. Uh, I, uh, I chaired a public safety forum, I believe it was in March at the New Century Theater, and it was well attended. It was about 50 or 60 residents in the area and I think the public response was, sure, why not? Because like you mentioned with MnDOT, right now you could go online and see what's happening on 35E and County Road C. Uh, so why can't we do that on 6th Street and Hennepin Avenue? Just have some of them open to the public. Right. And plus, in the age of if you see something, say something, I think that would be a valuable resource. Somebody sitting at home or at work, they flip on the camera access and they say, hey, wait a minute. That doesn't look right on 6th and Hennepin. What are those people doing? And so I think having more eyes on the situation would help. And, and again, what you're talking about is cameras in public areas. This is something, you know, this is images that if, if somebody was walking by on the street, they'd be able to see. And, and, and so right. this is not getting into somebody's car or no. apartment or, or condo. This, this is something just, just the public areas. The other thing is the repeal of that uh, law that, you know, people were just sort of standing on the street. When was that repealed? It was repealed two years ago. Uh, there were two uh, Minneapolis ordinances that were repealed. One is was the sidewalk obstruction, and the second one was the lurking with intent. The lurking with intent, that was used in situations where it looked like someone was basically lurking with the intent to do some other crime like a drug deal. And uh, that one wasn't you. Well, basically, both of those laws weren't ticketed that often. But it, it that to me, that's a sign that they were useful because it's not like speeding tickets. You speed, you get a ticket. The blocking of the sidewalk was mostly used in order to get the police to have a reason to go into a group of people and say, hey, you can't block the sidewalk. You have to have room for pedestrians to get by. Right. Um, and also, I had not heard that before about that the number of staff at that first precinct is the same. Basically, it's the same. Um, they have a public safety person at the first precinct, and uh, you could go and get statistics. And um, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's close to 20 years that they haven't had an increase in the patrol officer part. 
Right. Because as I said, I mean, something does need to be done. And the issue of people also blocking the sidewalk, it is because oftentimes I work at night, um, you know, late at night and, and I've seen it. And I think the construction along Nicollet Mall has, you know, added to this problem because it's, it's in effect sort of sealed off parts of downtown. I don't know if you have any right. thoughts about that, but it, it's and it's op- beginning to open back up. But I think it just kind of literally sealed off areas because the construction has been so bad. Right. And it's all open that will, to some degree, be alle- alleviated. But the, the the basic thing to get out there, I think, to the public is that, you know, our city should really be working on this. And we don't want to have people who don't want to come down to Hennepin Avenue uh, that are. And I think there are a lot. Yes, there are a lot. Yeah, and yeah. and there are people and, like me telling my teenagers don't go down there at night. You right. know, even though it's reasonable for them to be able to go to a baseball game or whatever, I just I really, you know, I mean, there was a fatal stabbing right. at, a, at a parking ramp that the, the one that attaches to the Twin Stadium, for God's sake. That that's all correct. That's all true. And the thing about it is, all that we've been hearing from most of the city officials is well. We need more gun control. We need more federal programs. And, and by the way, all of that is fine. Absolutely. We need funding for programs. We should have gun control. All that's fine. But that doesn't give you boots on the ground results. Um, you know, it's going it, to think of how long it takes Congress just to do a new budget. It's going to take decades for the federal government to react. Most, most action that happens today ha- happens on a local level because that's where you could get things done. And these three points, I think we could get done very easily. Right. And not expensive. Not expensive. That exactly. Is correct. You know, that's, the cameras I mean, they're already there. Right. That's right. The cameras are already there. You already have the police officer. The only thing that would add more cost is to get more patrol officers in the first precinct. Yes. To hire more, more officers will cost money, of course, but it would be worth it. All right. Well, listen, uh, Joe Tamborino, criminal defense attorney and also the chair of the Downtown Minneapolis Neighborhood Association. I don't know, Joe. I think you should run for mayor. Uh, (laughs) I I would love to do that, but not now. It's going to be a while. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Joe. And thanks for covering this topic. Okay. Absolutely. No, I think these are brilliant ideas. And I I think they're they're brilliant because they're so simple. Uh, And I think anybody could look at them and say that, geez, that's a good idea. You know, I mean, it it should work. Uh, Anyway, thanks so much. Take care. You too. Okay. All right. Joe Tamborino, folks. Uh, seriously, I think those are great ideas. Uh, and I'm surprised that some of them have been shot down uh, by city officials. All right, folks, we do have to take a break. We're going to give you some weather. And then when we come back, uh, we are going to talk with Kelly Olson. She is the owner of Hans Bakery from Anoka. And she's going to talk about what she did for Irma. She ended up kind of grabbing a truck and going down there and just helping out. And we're going to hear her extraordinary story about why she did it, what's her takeaway as we continue to monitor the situation, the very tragic situation in Puerto Rico. So keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 65 degrees, uh, 737 in the Twin Cities. Uh, we all are continuing to monitor the situation in Puerto Rico. Uh, the president actually getting into uh, sort of a battle on Twitter with the mayor of San Juan uh, after the mayor criticized the federal response to that disaster, uh, the president criticizing her uh, and the Puerto Rican people 
uh, for their failure to manage the crisis. Uh, and we're going to visit with Dave Schultz, Professor David Schultz, on that topic in our 8 o'clock hour. Uh, one of the issues with Puerto Rico is the difficulty getting supplies and aid and volunteers and, and really the inability of even individuals to respond because you've got to fly in there, you've got to come in through a ship. Uh, the president waiving the Jones Act, which is a, an act that is on the books that only allows U.S. ships to come into ports. It, it's really been a, a terrible situation there. One of the things that we saw with Harvey and Irma is that not only did you have you know a very quick response from the federal government, but you also had this extraordinary response from individuals who, uh, many of them who were you know natives of those states, but also from individuals from all over the country responding. And one of those who responded to Irma in Florida was Kelly Olson. She is the owner of the Hans Bakery from Anoka, and she actually decided she was going to up and go and help the folks. Who are trying to recover from Irma, and Kelly is joining us now. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Esme. All right. Well, Kelly, first of all, tell us. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with your bakery, but tell us about your bakery and and how long your family's had it. I mean, it's sort of an institution up there. Uh, we bought the bakery in 2013 and had our grand opening in 2014, and have been very. Um, very happy with the response that the communities had in welcoming us back to that to that neighborhood. That location was actually closed for about four years, and we purchased it out of foreclosure. All right, and and it's right. Tell us about where it is so people can know to go it's there. It's right off of Fifth Avenue in Anoka. Um, so take a uh, turn at Main Street and Fifth Avenue, right next to the middle school. Okay. All right. So Kelly, uh, you're and owning a bakery isn't easy. It's a lot of work. I'm sure there are a lot of early mornings. Yeah, uh, very early mornings. What time do you usually get to work? You know, um, the bakery runs pretty much twenty four hours a day, so I'm in there at all all different hours. Um, I actually had been a real estate broker and lost my husband in a car crash with a drunk driver in two thousand eight, and decided I wanted to do something where um, people would slow down and spend time with the people they love. So this was a labor of love getting the bakery open again. And it's been such a success out of out of your personal tragedy. I know that it is a beloved bakery and, and one that, that has been very, very successful. Uh, tell me about kind of, obviously everybody saw this news and some people, you know, donated to the Red Cross. Some people, you know, tried to provide help for relatives who might be down there. Some people maybe donated to animal shelters that are trying to help out. What did you, what made you decide I need to do something more. Um, we, my husband and I actually have a house down on Marco Island. My husband's a fishing guide, so he guides here in Minnesota in the summer and then down there in the winter, and I fly back and forth for work. Um, we were concerned about our house not being boarded up and our boat sitting on the lift there. So my husband flew down just to secure everything, and when he got there, they were out of um, plywood already, and the gas stations were out of gas. So it um, really, the closer and closer the storm got, um, the less I worried about our property and the more I worried about him just getting out of there safely. I found myself just refreshing, you know, my browser over and over again to find the most uh, detailed information on where they thought the storm was going to hit. And I was um, looking for a way to redirect that energy. And actually, at the last minute, because Marco Island is on the Gulf side. It is. Right. Uh, and and 
I think what happened with Irma is that the trajectory was supposed to go up until the last minute on the East Coast, and, yeah, the we East Coast, actually, and then it did a turn. Yes, we kind of let our guard down a little bit, thinking, okay, it passed. Uh, it's going to go up the East Coast. So we thought um, we were going to be okay on our side. Um, but by Friday night, and we didn't know where it was going to go, um, that's when, again, I just wanted to redirect that energy and try to do something to, to be helpful, regardless of which coast it, it ended up hitting. So what did you end up doing? Um, you know, there was no planning involved. Um, it was Friday night, late, and I just thought, I need to, uh, I need to do something. Um, I need to go down and check on my house anyway after this is over. Why don't I just bring supplies down there with me when I go? So I called my parents who have a, an, a motorhome and an enclosed car hauler, and they said, sure, we'll, we'll drive down there. So I put a post out on our bakery Facebook page, and by the time my dad pulled in the driveway with his trailer, there were already people standing in, you know, standing in the parking lot waiting to put things in the trailer. So that was, that was the beginning of it. Right. So, so donations. And so then you ended up driving down we, there. We filled this 24 foot car hauler and we ended up with even additional um, items. We could fit 9,000 pounds in there and we got more supplies than that. So what we couldn't fit, we sent on a semi truck down to Harvey and then we got in the car and started driving. Um, in fact, we were going through Chattanooga and we lost one of the tires on the trailer. Oh, no. Um, so we got flagged over. We sat in a parking lot and an emergency roadside service came. It actually took them until the next morning to fix it. And um, they fixed it for free uh, when they called, oh. when they told us. I mean, we were just in tears. Everyone, the whole way um, down there and back honked and waved. We had signs on the side of the trailer. Um, we actually got flagged over by a semi-truck driver who gave us $20 on the freeway. But we were just happy tears the whole way down there and back. Okay. And what what did your sign say? It just said, um, Irma donations accepted here. And one of the kids who was helping us collect um, donations had written these signs on a hot pink uh, tag board and <laughs> taped them up on the on the trailer, and we just didn't didn't take them down. So <laughs> very very cool. Um, and listen, this is probably a good t- time to take a break. We're, we're chatting here with um, Kelly Olson. She's the owner of Hans Bakery about her sudden uh, spur of the moment mission to go down and help those uh, suffering from actually Harvey and Irma. So let's take a quick break. We'll have more with Kelly after this. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. The McCarthy Auto World Time is 748. Certified McCarthy Cadillacs now up to 40% off MSRP. Shop McCarthyAuto.com. That's McCarthyAuto.com. We are chatting right now with Kelly Olson. She is the owner of the fabulous Hans Bakery right in the city of Anoka. And we're just hearing about her decision to just – her husband was already down in the path of Hurricane Irma checking on their property on Marco Island. And she said, I've just got to do it. She puts a notice up on the Hans Bakery Facebook site. Please donate. She's got a trailer. She's got thousands of pounds of, of uh, relief supplies and, and you're heading down there. And what kinds of relief supplies do you did you – were you bringing or were you hauling, Kelly? You know, we were actually really um – 
we were really fortunate to have a woman who had helped with Hurricane Harvey um, contact me and let me know which items are really helpful in a, an immediate um, emergency situation versus which um, which supplies are less helpful right away or maybe our secondary needs. Um, so we were really clear with our uh, customers on our way, on our Facebook page um, that we needed diapers and baby supplies. We needed water. I was thinking like probably formula. Formula. Yep. We needed uh, things like protein bars. When you don't have any electricity um, and there's no way to cook, even canned goods, um, they're less helpful if you don't have a way to actually heat them up. Um, So we were really, uh, really clear with people. We put together a lot of hygiene kits. So toothbrushes, toothpaste, you know, the, what she described to me was things that you would really be kicking yourself if you forgot when you went on a long trip. So we pre-sorted everything and pre-packaged it so that it would be easy to distribute wow. uh, when we arrived. Um, and that ended up being really, really helpful. All right. And then uh, where did you head first? I was in touch with someone who was in one of the shelters in Florida, and they were telling me which areas were hardest hit and where I should probably start. Um, we first went to Immokalee, where at Immokalee High School they had... And what, where is uh, Immokalee? Um, Immokalee is uh, sort of inland, a little bit from Naples, so maybe right in the middle of the state. Okay, got it. Um, in Collier County. So in that area, there's a lot of migrant farm workers and a lot of them living in trailer homes, which were really hard hit Um They just can't stand up to the wind like a lot of the other houses down there can. Um, At that shelter, when we arrived, um, actually because of our our car trouble uh, with the tire, we didn't get there until 6 o'clock in the morning, and we started making breakfast and handing out supplies by 9. So it was a quick quick turnaround. You know, it must be, uh, as we look at the crisis in Puerto Rico, it's – it's so heartbreaking because what you did, you know, and, and what other individuals did, it can't happen there because, you know, you can't just drive that truck to Puerto yeah. Rico and, and do it. And I think oh. that's what's so so tragic and heartbreaking to not be able to deliver. These, oh, Esme, these... you have no idea. I I have literally been on the phone with cruise ships and cargo cargo planes and logging helicopters trying to figure out amphibious people who sell amphibious vehicles, trying to figure out a way to get supplies uh, to Puerto Rico. In fact, we, after we left Immokalee, that shelter had 450 people in it. We went down to Everglades City, and it looked like a war zone. Um, there was mud in people's homes, you know, eight inches to a foot and mold growing. And when we got there, they told us, you know, they appreciated the supplies we brought and that they really needed, um, they needed shovels and crowbars and hammers and sprayers for bleach so that they could start cleaning out. Um, and we were so fortunate to have had people donate not only supplies, but also money that we could turn around and drive to the nearest Lowe's and buy those things that people needed and turn around and bring them right back to them without any red tape to go through. So we just felt just so fortunate all the way around to to have the ability to do that. Um, But the situation in Puerto Rico um, 
we did end up donating $1,300 to an organization on Marco Island who put those supplies on a private jet and flew to Puerto Rico with them and then picked up past their, I'm sorry, uh, patients from some of the hospitals uh, there and brought them back to Florida. So oh, wow. we did feel good about being able to kind of spread the love around a little bit. And, and let me ask you, your property on Marco Island, which is gorgeous, a gorgeous, gorgeous place, how did that fare? We were so lucky. Uh, we did have some damage, but nothing that we can't handle. You know, some roof tiles and the right. the screens on the pool, but really okay. we were just incredibly lucky. Right. Our house is even elevated, so um, even with the storm surge, we didn't get any in our house. And, and Kelly, I love, uh, you know, bakery owner from Anoka, the city of Anoka, actually, you're actually literally calling and trying to find amphibious vehicles to try and get supplies <laughs> into Puerto Rico. I mean, that that's amazing. I mean, that's what we need here, I guess. It just, I don't like the feeling of being helpless and watching from the outside, watching these people who are really suffering right now. In fact, I'm tearing up just even thinking about it now. The people there who are suffering and can't get uh, the supplies that they need. Um, it's really heartbreaking. Right. And I think, I think what's so catastrophic is that th- this, the island was so completely destroyed and devastated there. All the hospitals, the infrastructure, the ability c- to communicate. And I think even you know, there's been some remarkable reporting going on down mm-hmm. there. But I think it's difficult for reporters to get to some of these places and even get a cell phone signal to, to be able to send back a story. So I think the, 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 uh, the scope of the catastrophe, yeah. I think, is just coming to light. And I think it's issues like what water, the baby formula, all of yes. those things that are just I, um I mean, people tragic. drinking out of streams right now yes. and just because there is no water. Um, but I can't help but think that if we couldn't get some helicopters or something there, we'd be able to deliver um, to areas of the of the island that we can't get to by land right now. Um, my husband and I have a boat, but it won't go 1,100 miles. I have, I have been thinking about this um, ever since we uh, were driving back and listening to the news about Maria. Right. Well, listen, uh, Kelly Olson. It just it's remarkable, and it shows what 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 one person can do, and you know the, the positives that social media can bring. You know, a post on on your Facebook, on the Hans Bakery f- Facebook. Uh, you know, gets all of that attention and, and all of that love and, and support for the people of Irma. And keep me posted, Kelly, on on, well, on your do. mission. If, if, if there's somebody, and you know, as it really was way more than one person. I might be the spokesperson, but there were thousands of people who were amazing throughout this whole ordeal. And I would be, um, I need to specifically thank my parents because. <laughs> My poor parents loading up their RV and driving me <laughs> thousands of miles, and um, it was just an amazing, um, an amazing trip. We all felt very fortunate to be able to receive items on one end and hand them to people who needed them on the other. Well, listen, just- Kelly, thank you so much for sharing your story. Keep us posted on uh, if you have any good fortune being able to help Puerto Rico. Uh, we have David Schultz from Hamlin University. He's coming up next. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 